Hello, I'm Elaine, and I welcome you to FBEATS, Lessons in Graceful Living. Today, we are pleased to have with us Suhaimi Zainal Abedin, who is CEO of Quantage Capital, a successful hedge fund founded in Singapore. He's also a director of Quantage Foundation. We will hear about Quantage Capital and also the philosophy behind Quantage Foundation a little later. Prior to him joining Quantage in 2013, Suhaimi was a leading banking and finance lawyer. Again, more on this later. Suhaimi holds several board and equivalent positions at a number of Singapore government-related agencies and entities, including the National Environment Agency, and the Skills Future Singapore Agency. He's passionate about leadership development, business strategy, social impact, governance, and risk management. One thing I will not forget is something Sohaimi had said in an earlier interview. And if I may take the liberty of paraphrasing it, Sohaimi said, the whole point about making money is to mobilize capital in order to make real change. This is a long fight, and this is where we will devote our intellectual capital. So what struck me was the intentionality behind this. The energy and capital and intellectual capital being devoted to making change. Of course, energy also in building a robust investment portfolio, etc. But really, it's how intentional it is. This made me reflect on the sense of purpose for each of us and why we do what we do. But before exploring this, I wanted to know about Suhaimi as a person and what drives him. So I'll pose him a few questions. Sure. So Suhaimi, you started your career as a lawyer and you now find yourself as CEO of a hedge fund. How did that happen? Yeah, you know, it's true. It's, uh, when, when I look back, um, of course, I was a lawyer some time ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. And, and that kind of tells you you never really know where you're going to end up. Um, but 10 years ago, I was at Allen & Gladhill. I, I originally started there as a practice trainee in 2004. Um, you know, and then got called to, well, eventually became partner in the banking and finance practice about 2009 uh, and stayed until 2013. So I... In that 10 years, I outlasted many of my peers already. Um, and at that point in time, I probably felt I was going to be at ANG forever. It was a great place to be. It was kind of like where I, I grew up and I was doing great work, right? Cutting edge work. I was really happy where I was. I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, undoubtedly grueling, right? Physically, mentally, it's, it's, it's tough, but, uh, but it's where I grew up. Mm. You know, it's where I cut my teeth and, and, grew professionally. Um, so I, I didn't think that I would ever leave, but sometime in 2013, I remember this uh, conversation really uh, vividly because uh, one of my friends gave me a call. I was in, I was in camp. I was doing national service. Ah, okay. He gave me a call and, uh, and said, hey, have you ever thought about joining a hedge fund? Right, and my answer was pretty straight, like, nope, not interested. I'm, I'm, I love what I do. I'm happy where I am. Uh, and that hedge fund was obviously uh, Quantage. Uh, which I had some familiarity with. You know, I, I happened to be an, an investor in the fund uh, a bit earlier. Oh, okay. Uh, and the guy who called me was a friend of mine, the founder of Quantage, and I, I happened to 
you know, be in school with him. Took a while, a couple of months for, for them to convince me uh, to join Quantage. Um, it wasn't an easy decision. Um, you know, being someone who thought that this was the career for me, being a lawyer. Uh, but what really excited me about that opportunity, was, it wasn't about higher pay, certainly not that. It wasn't about better work-life balance. Uh, but what really excited me was the opportunity, I think, to, to grow together with a somewhat young firm. Right, to build something together with a bunch of really talented individuals where you know you think the sky is the limit. Um, and that was really exciting. Yeah. Right. So so I eventually moved into in 2013 to to join Quantage. Um, and initially it was to be general counsel. Um, and then slowly sort of crept into more and more sort of uh, areas of, of the firm, operations, risk management, investor relations, and eventually you know, exposure to those areas became responsibility over those areas and eventually CEO. So, so that's how I got there. Uh, but it's 10 years since I've, I've been at Quantage. And so it's you, been a while. Do you miss the previous life as a lawyer? Absolutely. Ah, Absolutely. I do, okay. I do miss uh, legal practice. Which aspects? Um, although I must qualify that by saying um, I'm probably looking into the past with somewhat rose-tinted yeah. glasses, right? Because as a lawyer, you tend to sort of complain a little bit about how tough life is. Uh, but looking back, actually, it's a great career. Mm. You know, there's, there's certainty in terms of the progress that you're going to make. Uh, there's uh, assurance in the fact that if you really work hard, and put your mind and soul into it, that you'll get rewarded for it, right? So that's, that's, that's a great career to have. Um, but there are certain aspects that I like more than others, obviously. I mean, there's, there's the baseline competencies, right? You need to be good yeah. at certain things. Um, there's knowing the law, there's giving advice, there's uh, documentation, negotiation. I like negotiation. Uh, I like bringing deals to a close, seeing clients celebrate. Um, but the, the part that for me was most interesting about legal practice was actually the business side of it, ah, right? Okay. Strategizing um, how to expand your offering. In your product offering, your your, your suite of skills, um, you know, pricing, market strategy, how to how to get more clients, uh, how to build a team, how to be more profitable, uh, which is often not sort of uh, considered when you think about a legal career. But actually, you know, the the business of law is is just like any other professional services business, right? It's yeah. a real business that you got to think about growth. You got to fight for uh, your piece of the pie, and and that's actually the part that I really like. Yeah, you mentioned risk and rich. Um, wanted to ask you, for example, you sit on a number of boards ranging from statutory boards and agencies and private funds and charities. Um, how have you approached uh, risk management across these sectors? Well, I would say that risk management across the sectors, there's a lot of similarities and differences. Uh, one of the I think a healthy way to look at it is to always have a good dose of fear <laughs> within you. Um, I mean, to be honest, look, when you look at risk management, when you think of risk management, you need to be, you need to be quite deliberate about it. Right? You need to uh, be very detailed. You need to take uh, a wide variety of views into consideration. But again, as a starting point, uh, you, need to, you need to be fearful. Uh, you can't be paralyzed by fear, obviously. Uh, but my view is if you lack fear, uh, then that's when you get into trouble. Right? It's, it's the Icarus paradox, right? What enables you to succeed and to fly higher 
can get you in trouble if you're not, uh, you know, fearful of the risks. Yeah. Um, and and what I mean by that is you, I mean for us, for me, in in many of the risk uh, audit or risk committees that I sit on, our job, unfortunately, is to think of the worst case scenario. Yeah. Right. We want to think of what could possibly happen. We need to think about all the contributors to that risk. We need to think about probability and severity. Uh, think about ways to avoid it. If you can't avoid it, then mitigate it. I mean, that's the the standard sort of matrix for for coming up with a uh, risk management framework. Um, but I think also one of the things that we could do more uh, is to think about the opportunities that come about from risk. And so if you see a, a a particular risk that you think needs to be addressed, in addition to just mitigating and avoiding, can we turn it into a strength? What can we do? I mean, sometimes it requires quite novel, even extreme solutions, um, but it has been done. Right? People have turned weakness into strength, and I think that that is a good outcome you know, out of risk management. We shouldn't think of risk management always as a defensive mechanism. So in relation to Quantich, um, are you able to share specifically what might be the biggest risks on the horizon? You know, for Quantage, what we're in the business of investment management, as I mentioned before. So when most people think about investment management, they think, they're thinking, right, you know, you're taking positions, making investments, making money. And people often ask, uh, one of the first questions a prospective investor will ask is, oh, what kind of returns do you expect to make? The reality is you can never predict what your returns are going to be. Of course. Right? What we do and what, what you know, actually most investment managers do is to understand the risk that you're taking. And of course, for all risks that you take, there is an expectation of returns. But you can't control the returns. You can control the risk. So for Quantage, we, our approach, and, and it's embedded within how we do things, is to not just try to understand the risk, but to quantify the risk. And based on the risks that you're willing to take, then you take positions in the market. Right? So for Quantage, of course, there are many, many types of risks. The biggest risk that we face on a daily basis would be you know, market risk market fluctuations, things that happen in the markets, which is the next bank that's going to fail, what's the interest rate change going to be, stuff like that. There are also less obvious risks, you know, counterparty risks, liquidity risks, all sorts of things. Right? So we're, we're constantly on the lookout for all these things, trying to understand it, and then calibrating our positions accordingly. Uh, but there are also very big risks that we need to be mindful of that's a bit harder to sort of quantify. And to me, one of the biggest risks, not just for Quantage, but across the board, on all the organizations that, that I'm involved with, I would say the biggest risk is climate change. Climate change is the biggest risk that we need to be aware of, right? And, and, we talk, and, and I classify that as a risk for many reasons, in the sense that we all know, well, most people would agree at least, it took us a long time, many decades for, for us to get here, in the sense that everybody sort of really realizes what a big issue this is. Uh, but it's still a risk in the sense that we don't really know how bad it's going to be. I think we're starting to feel it now. People have been talking about it for ages, but finally, I think you would say we're starting to feel the heat, right? The increased temperatures, rising, uh, you know, sea levels, so on and so forth. Yeah. And often, when it comes to dangers like that, you only start to 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 really understand and, and appreciate and be compelled to take action when you really feel it. Yeah. So we're starting to feel it now, and I think uh, people are sort of compelled to take action. But we're, we're already a, a bit late, right? This is an, an existential issue. Are we going to be 
fast enough to re uh, reverse the damage that's done, right? Um, so I think this is the biggest risk that's facing us because the problem with this risk is you can't avoid or mitigate it as an individual, exactly. right? As one person, you can't solve it. You can't save yourself alone. Uh, and even companies can't do that by themselves. Countries can't do that by themselves. You need concerted action. So that's why, it's a, to me, it's the biggest risk that we're all facing. That's very sobering <laughs> because, um, yeah, because it requires collective effort, which is one of the most difficult Absolutely. things to mobilize Absolutely. and And it's a race yeah. against time. You yeah. know, we don't know whether yeah. we're going to be fast enough now. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. I don't think there's any point being anything else but an optimist. But as optimistic as you can be, it's not enough, right? You need to invest uh, into finding the solution then you need people to be aligned in terms of deploying those solutions. I mean, we can all do our little bits, right? You can know, reuse, recycle, reduce, all those kinds of things. Um, but if we don't reduce uh, carbon emissions, we're all in trouble. Yeah. Can't disagree. You are also involved in the corporate purpose agenda in Singapore. Can you tell us about it and how is this important? You know, that's, that's a really exciting space. Um, you know, when we think about what we need to do, not just climate change-wise, but in terms of making this whole world a better place, I think we can do a lot if we galvanize for-profit organizations, amongst others, all kinds of corporates, right, to, to have the right sort of mindset when it comes to doing business. So there was an alliance for action, or there is an alliance for action on corporate purpose. Uh, this is in line with the, or as part of the SG Together sort of movement. And they came up with a corporate purpose framework, uh, blueprint, blueprint really, um, that helps companies to adopt and embrace corporate purpose, this idea of corporate purpose. And, and maybe another way to look at it is to imagine Singapore, right? A country, small country, uh, where businesses obviously are influential, they're a big part of, of life, uh, and have the ability to, to change the outlook in Singapore. Um, if every company thinks about business as a means to improve Singapore, to better Singapore as a society, right? Looking at various pillars, right? We're talking about economy, uh, people, um, society, environment, governance. I mean, those those five pillars. Uh, if everyone takes concrete steps to sort of align everything they do towards improving society towards a corporate purpose, then I think we can achieve a lot, right? So essentially what you want to do is for every company to say, it's not just about making money, right? It's about finding that corporate purpose where my business can actually help society. Um, so that's the overall sort of intent. We want all companies to be a force for good, right? Uh, and if that is embedded within their, their ethos, their culture, then it sort of uh, percolates down, right? That the leaders start thinking about it, the employees start thinking about it, from the employees it goes down to families, so it becomes a way of life. Like everybody knows that, look, we're all here to do good. When someone does good, everybody benefits. And I think companies have a very big role to play. So is it gaining traction? Oh yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, I'm involved in this via uh, the National Volunteer and Philanthropy Centre, NVPC, okay. so they've been a big uh, champion for this. Uh, in fact, their mandates to actually get more companies on board, help them through the process. So we've got a long line of 
uh, companies that have signed up. And, and the companies that have signed up are not necessarily those that uh, have already achieved that. I mean, it's not, it's not like they know what to do exactly, but most of them want to get on the journey. And that's really important because I think it, it is about learning and, and improving yeah. along the way. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good to hear. Well, to wrap up, would you give us one or two takeaways? Maybe I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk a bit about well, something a bit different from what, what we've spoken about so far. I just wanted to share something. Um, I just came back from uh, a trip to London yes. where I was uh, quite privileged to spend a couple of days in London Business School. Uh, so a couple of friends, we discussed all sorts of things. So we do case studies, learning about you know, how other businesses react to many different challenges. One of the interesting uh, sessions uh, was actually about resilience. Mm. Okay, so you know when we f when I first entered into the class, I was thinking, like, oh, not resilience again. It's been talked to death, right? Resilience. Uh, but but the conversations that came out were quite interesting, and and we sort of came to this conclusion that you know most people will be able to define resilience. Right? They talk about you know, the ability to withstand pressure, the ability to bounce back from adversity. Okay, fine. But what does that really mean? How do you how do you build resilience? And I thought maybe I, I would share this because I find it really intriguing. So we sort of boiled it down to two uh, cornerstones, two things that are really, really important. Uh, and the first one is actually gratitude. So whenever you whenever you come to that point where the, where you, know, you sort of lose hope because things get really tough, things don't go according to plan, and you feel, oh gosh, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to rebound, I'm not gonna make it. You know, plans have failed. I think the first thing you need to do is to be grateful for everything else that you have. Right. Because no matter what, it could be worse. And you actually have a lot of things going for you. Mm. And once you have that, then that's the, that's the base, that's the platform. Because you're not going to sink below that because there are good things going for you. So gratitude is the first one. And then we came to the second uh, sort of conclusion after some debate. Right? Um, the second thing that's really going to propel you up is this desire of, let me say desire, it's more a belief, a belief that you can do better, which is a bit distinct from feeling like, you know, especially when you're a bit disappointed, people mm -hmm. tend to feel it's not really fair, I deserve better. And that's a negative thought. Mm -hmm. But once you establish, look, I have a lot to be grateful for, and I want to do better, and I can do better, that then establishes sort of the next step up because you then regain control over yourself to know that actually I can get out of this. It is within my control and I want to do it. Mm. So I thought just to share this because I thought in combination, the, great, the gratitude together with this desire to do better, which puts control back in your hands, those two things in combination will actually you know, result in resilience, which I think you know, people so often sort of think about it, right? They say it's necessary. We don't know whether, you know, there's enough resilience within the company, the organization, the country, the youth. And I think if you boil it down to those two things, um, you know, everyone can, can have a resilient mindset. I think what you've mentioned are basically the tools, the tools that within exactly. us yeah. we can harness yeah. to keep going despite, you know, Indeed. what's happening. Right. Okay. So, Jaime, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us today. You're most welcome. FBeats is a podcast of the FB platform supported by RHD Grace Institute, a non-profit organization. You may find out more information in the notes to this podcast. Mm -hmm.